Please remain standing for a reading from God's word. This is Psalm 119, beginning in verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my free will offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Good morning. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. As we look at, do not commit adultery. Do not commit adultery. We'll consider this passage in according to the same theme that we've been running through for all of these commandments, and that is simply this, that we want to find our delight in obeying what God has, has revealed to us as good and, and right, that we want to look to this command and look and see how is it that we find our delight in abstaining from sexual immorality and looking very different than the culture we now live in. And I think to do that and to do that well, we need to lay a biblical foundation for what marriage is and what that looks like, that it happens within a covenant relationship, that it is a one flesh union. We also then need to look to the scriptures and see the incredibly high standard that the New Testament gives us. That like uh, murder last week, we see that it also relates to anger and the desires that lead to murder. Committing adultery is the same kind of thing. Do not commit adultery is not to simply step out on your spouse, but it's all the things that lead up to that kind of thing that we have to look at and look at the high standard that the New Testament does give us. And finally, I want to help you obey this passage. What does it look like other than just saying, don't cheat on your wife this week, check, got it. How do we actually obey the really high standard that we see? How can we do this Has God enabled us and given us the grace to be able to do that? And I believe the answer is yes, but we want to look to that as well this morning. And so with that, we are going to take a look and first begin by laying that foundation 
If you're in your Bibles, and just kind of like last week, we really had to move back and forth. Everything will be up on the screen, but if you want to follow along with me, you can. Please turn to Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. That's Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. This passage that I'm getting ready to read gets quoted several times throughout the Bible, and we're going to look at some of those places today as we look and we see what it looks like to lay the foundation for marriage, that marriage is God-ordained and a one-flesh union, because that foundation is what really matters when we have this, the negative command, do not commit adultery, comes from the positive one of remaining and being in one flesh, a one-flesh union with your spouse. And so Genesis chapter 2, verse 23 through 25 reads like this. Then the man said, This at last is a bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What we see in this passage is that this is something that is instituted or ordained by God. That God is the one who takes Adam and puts him into a deep sleep and takes from his body and makes Eve. As he's before this, he's had Adam look at every field, uh, beast of the field and bird of the, the air and fish of the sea. And he names these different creatures and it says none of them are found suitable to be a helper for him. Then he, God creates Eve as a response to giving Adam what he needs, his helpmate. This is something God has instituted, God has put together. This is a good gift that God has given us, something to be enjoyed without any shame, that they are naked and unashamed. We see that it's a relationship that transcends all other relationships. When it comes to earthly relationships, the relationship between husband and wife is deeper than any other You are to be closer to your husband or to your wife than you are your best friend and buddy. You're be closer than even your parents. For this reason, a man shall leave his mother or his and his father, and he shall hold fast to his wife. The relationship between parent and child is deep. It's supernatural. The Bible is telling us we leave our mom and dad to hold fast to our spouse, and even I have to remember, while I love these little babies that I have, one day they are going to leave too. The Lord willing, if he is kind to me, my wife will still be there, and I will still be there. We must hold fast to our spouse. It transcends every other relationship, and they become one flesh. This is, I believe, a nod, and the Bible does a really good job of when it's speaking of such intimate and delicate matters. It is not vulgar, but it is a nod to intimacy that is had only in the context of marriage between man and woman, of what it looks like, this intimate thing that they share together, that it brings them into one flesh. And we'll see this in another passage in just a moment. We see kind of throughout the Bible that when Jesus is asked about 
the appropriateness of divorce. When can you divorce somebody? He's asked this by the Pharisees. We talked about this in Mark chapter 10. A parallel passage in Matthew 19 is, I think, a little more helpful for us today. But they come to Jesus and they ask him, when is it acceptable to have a divorce? And because they're asking, because in certain rabbinic codes, you could divorce your wife if she, like, burnt food. It was, it was just this kind of lackadaisical, laissez-faire kind of attitude towards marriage. And Jesus is saying what God has put together, and he quotes this verse from Genesis 2. What God, therefore, has put together, let no man separate, because he says that the two have become one flesh. That they are bound together, and it's supposed to be a relationship that lasts for a lifetime. And it's so meaningful and important. But in Matthew 19, he gives a stipulation. He says, in verse 9, he says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And while there are a lot of questions in that passage that we just don't have time to answer, what that passage, I think, speaks to today is the reality that the one flesh union that's experienced in the intimacy of marriage is, is binding. The world lies to us and tells us that we can have casual intimacy. And it, and it can just be kind of a one night thing and then it just goes away. And the Bible says that's just not true. This, this binds you to this other person. So much so that though Jesus is advocating for no divorce... Jesus is advocating, listen, do not let man separate what God has put together. Jesus is acknowledging that when we give ourselves to another outside of our marriage, that it causes a deep cut and a deep wound. He provides this way. What he's saying is you're one flesh union. You're starting to share that with somebody else. And there's something else happening there. And so he gives this stipulation. Now, I don't think this is cause for us to experience this kind of thing and to immediately say, there it is, Matthew 9, 19, I'm out of here. If we can reconcile, we want to reconcile every marriage. But it is acknowledging the deep hurt that happens when we step outside of our marital vows, that we share ourselves with another person. And there's a part of that that just is difficult. In 1 Corinthians 6, starting halfway in verse 13, going to verse 20, God tells us through the Apostle Paul, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. So it's happening in the background of 1 Corinthians is there were temple prostitutes that a way to get close to God and this pagan religion was through a sexual act. So you would go and you would sleep with a temple prostitute as some kind of means to get close to God or a means to maybe heal infertility or a means to do these various things. And Paul is telling Christians, this cannot happen among you. You absolutely cannot do this. And he's saying that because when we become a Christian, you become united to Christ. We are members of his body. And he is saying, whatever you unite yourself to, you are then uniting to Jesus. He says, can you do this? Never. And then listen to the rationale in verse 16. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute 
becomes one body with her. Why? For, as it is written, the two will become one flesh. The point that I'm trying to draw out here is marital vows and a ceremony aren't what make these two one flesh. It's the acting out of something that should only be uh, reserved for the context of marriage. This deep marital intimacy binds these people together. That's what the Bible is teaching us. And Paul is saying, you are united to Christ. You cannot bind yourself to something that is unholy, like this false idolatry and this extramarital affair. We cannot be a people who do these things. Verse 17, he says, But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the rationale. That when we connect our body to something unholy. We as Christians are connecting Christ to something unholy. And he's saying, don't let that happen. You're worth more than that. You've been bought with a price. He's, he's helping us see that while all sin is punishable by death and all sin is atoned for by Christ. And we're not trying to make anything higher up the scale than the others, there is a reality that we're dealing with here, that sexual immorality is a sin against your own body, where everything else is outside of your body. He said, there is something deep, spiritual, emotional happening when we bring ourselves into this. The way that God made you, when he made man and woman and said, therefore, you shall leave your parents, hold fast to your wife, and the two shall become one flesh, is helping us see that there is no way to separate the physical act from the emotional intimacy, the deep spiritual bond that happens when you share your bed with somebody else. Our culture has made us, has downplayed this. We are oversensitized to these things because we watch TV shows over and over and over again where they meet, they have a good time, they even maybe fall in love, they kiss on a couch, it fades to black, and when it opens up in the morning, we've known that they spend the night together, and it makes it out to be like it's all okay, and that's all going to work out, and it's all going to be sunny and rosy, and it's not going to be a problem, but the real world tells a completely different story. The real world is filled with heartbreak, heartbreak that we're just not meant to experience. And what the Bible is teaching us as it lays this foundation is that God has made you both body and soul, and the soul impacts the body, and the body impacts the soul. And these two things are unified together. So the way we use our body is always going to inevitably impact our soul. This is the foundation that God lays. It's what he's trying to explain. And this is either something that is experienced, and because that is true, is a wonderful reality as you become one flesh with your spouse. 
or it's a hard difficulty as we divide our spirit and our flesh over and over again. There's good news in Jesus, and we will get to that, but we want to see what the Bible is teaching about these realities first. And yet, when we look to the rest of the New Testament scriptures, we see that even this that we've outlined is not really even high a standard enough. That even the physical act is not what we're limited to, but we see that when we think thoughts we're not supposed to think, when we say things that we're not supposed to say, that we are guilty of adultery. See, what we need to see is that God has a high standard and that he desires from us purity in our actions, our thoughts, and our words. This is what God desires for you, and he desires not just from you, but for you. And for your good. In Matthew 5, verses 27 through 28, when Jesus teaches about adultery, he says this, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's an incredibly high standard. Jesus is saying it's not just about what you do physically. It's about the intentions of your mind. When you look to somebody else, and you dwell on somebody else who's not your spouse, and you start to find satisfaction and joy that's only meant to be had in the covenant of marriage, you commit adultery. You begin to bring God and connect Him to the things that are unholy, even though you have been made holy. Paul tells us this in Ephesians 5, if we can up the ante even more, verses 3 through 5. He says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetedness must not even be named among you, as, in, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an adulterer or an idol, <laughs> an adulterer, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. What a high standard. When Paul looks at the church, he says, these kind of things should not even be mentioned among you. Saints should live in a way that none of this is proper. Even our words crude jokes, filthy speech. It's not to be named among us. Don't think thoughts of lustful intent or you've already committed adultery. Don't say or make that joke even though it's really funny and it's just the guys or just the girls that are hanging out. They're saying this is out of place. This is an incredibly high and daunting standard to all of us. When I consider these verses and the reality of marriage and all that it is, and I take a good and sober look at this, I have to admit something. I don't make it. I have failed. I am not somebody who has never had an impure thought. I am not somebody who has never spoken an impure word. 
And God knows every thought I've ever had and every word I've ever uttered from my teenage crazy self to even my adult self. And the reality is, is when I look at his perfect and holy law, I don't measure up. And if you're honest, neither do you. Even if this is an area of extreme victory in your life, you've gotten angry, you've coveted over something, you want to steal time at work or whatever it might be, the reality is, is these commands come to us and they are heavy and they are burdensome and we cannot carry the weight on our own. But listen to the gospel Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. He is talking about these commands. He is talking about this law. It can only bring us death. It can only condemn, but only the gospel can free us. Verse 3, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. See, if you are in Christ Jesus, in Romans 7, he has walked through. Why do I do the things that I hate to do? Why do I still continue to fail? Who will deliver me for such a peril? At the end of Romans 7, he says, thanks be to Jesus Christ our Lord. And then Romans 8, 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are here and you are a sexual sinner this morning, and if you are here, you are a sexual sinner this morning. There is nobody, nobody who fulfills the law of God on their own in absolute perfection. No one does that. But what God announces to you is that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the law weakened by the flesh and what it could not do, God did in sending his son, Jesus. In Jesus we can be changed. In Jesus, we can be forgiven and free, but forgiven and free to sin no more. These high standards that are given in Ephesians 5 and even by Jesus come after gospel proclamation. This is who you are in Christ. Therefore, don't let sexual immorality be named among you. See, what we have to see is we have to fight this balance and walk this tightrope, even as a pastor, for me to announce to you the good news of the gospel, because I know you have failed, and I have failed. Well, at the same time, I have to tell you the even better news that comes from the gospel is you don't have to keep failing. You can be different. You are not doomed to eternal or even the temporal failures of this life. There is a way of escape. So listen to the little children's song that we sing often. Be careful, little ears, what you hear. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little mouths, what you say. But the tag at the end of each of those verses is, for your Father up above is looking down with love. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. 
to or want to see is we have to, to know the way that we fight temptation is not through more legalism, but it's the love of God who sent his son for us to die for sin and put it to death, that we live according to the spirit of liberty and freedom that empowers and enables and supernaturally changes us so that we no longer desire the things of sin, but do desire the things of God. What we need to do is we have to allow the temptations of the flesh to not have their way in our life, but rather to push them down push you deeper into fellowship and communion with God, and for those of you who are married, to push you deeper into fellowship and communion with your spouse. To read Genesis 2, 24 again, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and listen, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. If we understand that the only godly sexual gratification we are permitted is in the context of marriage, that will push us deeper into the arms of our spouse and deeper into the love of God. We will hold fast to our spouse if we hold fast to our desire to please God in all we do. If you allow yourself to say, ah, it's just a little sexual immorality. It's just a little dirty joke. It's not that big of a deal. It's just, it's just a little commercial that's not that, it's just not that big of a deal. Then you can only swing as far in the other direction into the love and satisfaction that you're meant to feel in your spouse and in Christ. And the same is true for those who are single, for those who are not yet married. You must embrace these temptations and these difficulties and let them push you deeper into love and communion with Christ. Your longings, even if they're not primary primarily sexual, if they're just intimate, or the feelings of loneliness, or those feelings of difficulty, we've got to allow them to push us into Christ deeper and deeper, because we must believe when it is hard to believe that Psalm 1611 is true. This is, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Because you will get married and you will be quickly disappointed if you believe that marriage is the answer to your problems. It's not. A spouse can be a good spouse. They will make a terrible God every single time. This world will tell you, I know the path of life. Swipe left, swipe right. I know the path of life Nobody knows it's not that big of a deal. Just take a look at that screen a little longer. Read that novel. Scroll social media, look at the advertisement, just slow down a little bit. But every time we do that, we're saying, ah, this path looks good, this path looks good. But God tells us that he makes known to us the path of life, that in his presence there's fullness of joy, and in his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. We don't look to these passages in this incredibly high standard to make us feel guilty or overwhelmed or chained down by the law. 
What we want to see is we're missing out on joy. We're missing out on delight if we do not allow these temptations to push us deeper into the arms of our spouse and deeper into the arms of Christ. We miss out of the joy that he has promised us and us alone as Christians. So here's the question. How do we get practical? How do we actually obey this thing? What we suggest is by putting off and by putting on. Charlie, I messed up the slide. You're going to have to go down to Colossians first, and then you're going to go back to the top. And at this point, I'm sorry. That's not his fault. It's mine. But we talk about putting off and putting on. A lot of times when, we, when I meet on personal discipleship relationships, we utilize this language. I want to bring this in to, to everybody in our church, and it comes from uh, Paul Tripp, but ultimately it comes from Colossians 3. But it's the idea of, of it's not just enough to like stop doing bad things. We want to also start to do what is right. So in Colossians 3, verse 5, Paul tells them, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So we have to put those things to death. We have to be willing to put that to death. But then the next part is, if you go down to verse 12, and he elaborates on those in between, but just for today, Verse 12, he says, and then put on kindness as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. He's not just saying, put off and just stop doing bad things and just hold the line really, really tight. But it is a putting off of these things that are evil so that we might put on that which is good and right. So here's what I want us to look at as we look to put off and put on. First, we must look at what it looks like to put off. Or another way to say it is if you want to deal with sexual morality in a godly way, you've got to be willing to cut and run. Matthew 5, verses 29 through 30, we read 27 through 28. Jesus is high, standard before. Then listen to what he says. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now listen, I don't think we literally should be eyeless and armless by the end of the year, because that's what's going to happen if we take that literally. But the metaphor that's given is meant to be taken literally in the urgency that we are to give to cutting out things that lead us to sin. He has talked about if you look lustfully on a woman uh, with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. Therefore, if your eye causes you to sin, cut it out. If your arm causes you to sin, cut it off. What he is saying is we have to be willing to cut things out of our lives, things that may not be inherently evil in of themselves, but they're leading us to sin, and we just cannot control it. Cut it off. That's the thing. Are you willing to be inconvenienced so that you might be holy? We live in a world where everything is accessible on a screen in our pocket. Will we be people who are willing to be inconvenienced to be holy? Will you utilize a platform like Covenant Eyes? You have to pay for it. It sometimes slows down things on your phone. It's not that great. But if you are struggling, you need to cut that off. 
What it is is a program on your phone that will set you up with an advocate, means somebody that you know, you give them their email address, you obviously need their permission to do this, and it will take random screenshots of your phone. It will analyze those screenshots, it'll be able to detect if you're looking at things that are inappropriate, and it will notify your accountability partner, and it will help you. Later in that passage, Ephesians, Paul tells us that we must not, these things that are talked about in darkness that cannot be named among us must be brought to the light. You've got to be willing to cut and run. That's hard. It is hard to subject yourself to somebody else, to quite literally humiliate and submit yourself to the accountability of someone else. But will you do that kind of thing to be holy? Will you do that for your children in your house? Will you say, the parental settings are coming on. Oh, that means we can't watch so-and-so show. It doesn't matter. What I'm saying is your holiness is worth missing out on whatever other show that you want to watch. It just is. Parental settings don't just have to be used for parents. We are to be a people who are passionate about putting to death the things of the flesh. Are you willing to be convenienced? Are you willing to, to, to not have your computer in a place where you're all alone? Are you willing to, to have these things, uh, to not read the things that you're like, oh, but, but every other part of the book was really good. Don't go to hell for every other part of the book. Cut it out. Are we willing to cut and run because we love holiness? Because we believe that there's something better. There is something better that God is promising. Not out of legalism. Raccoons, when caught from time to time, the internet debates this, will gnaw off their limbs to get out of a trap or will at least pull them off to get out. If a raccoon is smart enough to figure out pulling myself out of this trap is better than dying, then we need to be willing to cut these things out of our lives. James chapter 1, verses 14 through 15 tells this, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. Make no mistake. It'll kill you. It will kill you. So that's what we put off. What do we put on? What we need to see in the Bible, we can look at uh, Corinthians chapter seven, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 if you want to go to a place. The reality is, is when the Bible talks about sexual intimacy and how it is to be enjoyed between husband and wife, the Bible talks about it in very clear terms in such a way in which your joy is to be in the joy of the other person. The point of sexual intimacy is not to find self-fulfillment. It's not to get what you want out of it. The point is to fulfill your spouse in both directions. Husbands should aim to fulfill their wives. Wives aim to fulfill their husbands. These are these things. And when we come together, we realize then that fundamentally it's not really about myself. It's about the other person. Every act of adultery, thoughts, words, whatever it is, is always primarily a selfish act. It's not about somebody else. It's about yourself. It's about your own fulfillment and your own pleasure, your own laughter. 
your own entertainment. Primarily, sexual immorality is a problem because it is selfish. Dave Harvey, in his wonderful book called When Sinners Say I Do, it's a book that is about marriage. It is awesome. I commend it to you. He says this, This is a fundamental reality of marriage, too. God intends for our greatest joy in marriage to come from being a primary source of joy to our spouse. Then quotes another pastor, John Piper, and says, The reason there is so much misery in marriage is not that husbands and wives seek their own pleasure, but they do not seek it in the pleasure of their spouses. That's what we want to look at. Are we people who aim to serve others? Those of us who are married, are we people who aim to serve our spouse? Is my joy, her joy, her joy, my joy? So what do we need to put on if we want to fight against sexual immorality? We must put on selflessness and put off selfishness. You need to seek to serve in these moments of difficulty. Husbands, when you feel that temptation, let it push you into Christ. It's time to do some dishes. It's time to vacuum. It's time to take the kids. It's time to let your wife out of the house. That's what you can do. It's not just a run into the bedroom situation, but look to serve her. Wives, in the same way, ask that question. How can I serve and love my husband? And to the singles, when you're tempted in this way, and everybody is, now's the time to call that church member who you know is struggling to talk to them and serve them. Now's the time to surprise that mom with four kids with a meal. Now's the time to do these kinds of things. Now's the time to seek out other people and think, how can I be of service to them? That's what it looks like to put on something holy, is to look, how do I serve somebody else? Because in isolation and by yourself, that's when these things are most difficult and most tempting. We want to put on and seek to serve others. That's how we can find freedom. Freedom from this reality of sin that dwells in all of us. What we've seen this morning is simply this. That the foundation for marriage is to be a one flesh union instituted by God that it is a blessing to us and not a curse. What you don't want to do is wish that all these things would just go away. No you don't. Because when done rightly and in a godly way, this is a wonderful, wonderful gift that God has given. It's a foundational part of what it means to be a human. But we want to see the incredibly high standard that God calls us to and not see it as labor and heavy burden. But remember that Jesus has told us that his burden is light and that his yoke is easy. And so in all the ways we fail, we know that he has fulfilled the law in our place but we also know that he has provided a way and a means in his church and his, in his common grace that we might enjoy and delight in purity because it pushes us deeper into relationship and fellowship with God and deeper into relationship and fellowship with our spouse. And when these things are true, this is the wonder and the beauty of this command. You shall not commit adultery because God has something so much better for you. That's the truth that we want to look to. So we can put off sexual immorality and selfishness and put on selflessness and the service of others. And that 
gives us this beautiful and wonderful freeing life. As we take a moment and transition to the Lord's Supper, we have to look to that truth and that reality that we are all sinners. We don't come to this table today because we're extra pure on all, all on our own, but because we've been made pure by the broken body of Jesus and the poured out blood of Christ. Here is the truth that nobody ever wants to talk about, but it is the truth. There is no bride ever who truly deserves to wear white on her wedding day. There is none. Everyone is a sinner. And there is no groom ever that would deserve that kind of bride, a perfect kind of bride. All of them, everybody standing up there on their wedding day has failed God in some way. But, but, Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 14 Listen to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. And then one addressed me saying, and he knows because he knows the truth. Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. He said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Listen, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. What makes us worthy before God? It's not ourselves. It's the reality, but by the wonderful grace of God, we have been washed in the blood of the Lamb and been made pure and clean and holy, not of our own works. Because of what Jesus has done, because what we will celebrate right here, his body broken for us, his blood poured out for us, makes it possible that sinners like me can go boldly before the throne of God, cry out for grace and mercy and receive it. Because that's how great the sacrifice of Jesus was. It's how spouses can forgive one another even when there's atrocious sin because they're able to forgive as Christ has forgiven them. It's how we're able to live another day when we failed in the same way that we swore we would never do again, we run and we cling to the cross and the blood of the Lamb, and we are faithful. He was faithful and just if we confess our sins to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We run to Jesus. And if you continue to run to Him, you will grow in endurance and ability, and you can put this to death. You are not trapped. You can be forever changed. And we as a church can be a place where sexual immorality is not even named among us. It is possible. But only through the blood of the Lamb and the wonderful enabling grace of Jesus.